The island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean holds a native tree known as the Tambalakok. It's a sight to behold, with a mighty trunk that became valued for its quality timber and produce of delicious pitted fruits that resembled peaches. Yet by 1973, the researcher Stanley Temple feared the species was vanishing. But what could harm such a sturdy tree on the same island where it had thrived for centuries? Temple suspected that the extinction of another native species of Mauritius was directly tied to the decline of the Tambalacoque. He believed that this vanished species' digestion was the key to spreading the Tambalacoque seeds across the island. Temple estimated that the remaining Tambalacoque on the island were about 300 years old an age that directly matched with the extinction of this prior avian species. He held a dire view of extinction events and envisioned them tumbling into one another, encouraging more and more destruction in their wake. Stanley Temple saw a cost where few others did. He saw the cost in the extinction of the dodo bird. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone on the Parcast Network. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find previous episodes, as well as Parcast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Today, we'll be looking into the disappearance of the dodo bird from its natural island environment and from the face of the planet itself. The dodo has become a historical joke. Its name is even used as an insult for those deemed less intelligent. That's why it's been so easy for humanity to write off the dodo's extinction as something natural, a foregone conclusion for a species designed poorly from the beginning. However, there's more nuance to the tale of the dodo than most people realize. Today, we're going to explore the depth and dignity that history has denied this flightless island dweller. We'll see that this bird's untimely end had more to do with mankind's own carelessness than the dodo's and we'll try to untangle the complicated story that came in the wake of their extinction. Because the true mystery surrounding the dodo bird isn't so much how it went extinct, but why it took us so long to find a complete fossil record of the bird. The hunt for its history is a generational saga. It involves both conniving paleontologists and persistent researchers like Stanley Temple, and it spans centuries of exploration and science. In the end, it's a story that depends on those who refuse to give up on this strange, misunderstood bird that became a laughingstock of history. A species and its environment are always tied together in an intrinsic way. For the island Mauritius, 
That beginning was over 8 million years ago, when a volcanic explosion beneath the Indian Ocean created an island 1,200 miles off the coast of Madagascar. At only 790 square miles, Mauritius isn't very large. It's about three quarters the size of Rhode Island. It's quite rocky, and the land in the middle of the circular mountain range gradually rises to over 1,000 feet above sea level. This plateau is what led to Mauritius's surprising biodiversity. Protected and isolated from climate elements and separated from larger, dangerous predators, both plant and animal life came to thrive atop the island. The island's scope of life even descends beneath the ocean itself. Mauritius is surrounded by the third largest coral reef on the planet. This guards the sea life that takes up residence in the lagoons inside Mauritius, like a great wall that repels invaders. Now, it's important to note that Mauritius wasn't a paradise. For every square mile of cool, dark forest, there were twice as many vast and rocky expanses, open to harsh sunlight and chaotic weather patterns. Yet its isolation provided a protective cover to the plant and animal life. It was a steady foundation upon which the living species could rebuild, even after huge disasters like drought or typhoons. It was a self-sustaining cycle of life that constantly made its Denzians hardier and hardier. But strangely enough, there were no notable land mammals, just rare fish, reptiles, and, of course, over 30 species of birds. The evolutionary path of birds is unique in some ways. If the conditions in one place are hostile, birds have the ability to travel a great distance in search of a new home. As we watch their migrations from the ground, their survival instincts take on an epic quality. But their nesting instinct is instinctive in many types of birds. It's common for species of birds to nest down in a particular area that lasts anywhere from mere weeks to lifetimes. The ancestors of the dodo bird belong to the latter group of birds. They were settlers. It's impossible to know exactly when the dodos settled on Mauritius, but we know the dodos were early settlers of Mauritius, thanks to the marks of evolution itself. When these birds landed on Mauritius, they could fly. As time passed and the creatures came to realize that there wasn't a single natural predator on the island, and that it was full of ripe fruit and seeds to eat, Slowly, the dodo bird evolved into the creature we know today. Thick-bodied, large in size, and of course, completely flightless. Right away, we run into the first big problem of interpreting the dodo's history. Due to the events of its extinction, there are very few fossil records left that could explain how the dodo lived in its earliest years. For decades, the only research into dodo physiology and behavior mostly came from one area on Mauritius, a veritable bone graveyard, the creation of which also serves as a perfect illustration of the dangers of life in close, isolated proximity. 4,200 years ago, this area on the island was a freshwater lake now called Mer Assange, until one of Mauritius's severe droughts reached its peak and the size of the lake shrank in response. The local species panicked. They all crowded into the shrinking lake, desperate for water, and unwittingly spreading bacteria all throughout the communal watering hole. Soon enough, the lake was a toxic swamp littered with the corpses of dead animals, including dodo birds. 
Today, the ground beneath the swampland of Mare Osage has provided scientists with the most varied access to the dodo skeleton, although only in small pieces and parts. But there is one thing this fossil find definitely told us about the dodo as a species. Kenneth Reisdijk, a researcher at the University of Amsterdam who extensively studied the dig site at Mare Osage between 2005 and 2015, puts it this way. The dodo was a survivor. Although they died in mass in the toxic marshlands, enough dodos survived to maintain the population on Mauritius. They were one of the few species on the island to survive this massive dieout. They had the right genetics and physiology to carry on. History's joke was no joke after all. And as Reichdijk also observes, the dodo's track record is still better than our own. At the time of their extinction, the dodo bird had survived for millions of years. So far, humanity has only managed about 200,000. The dodo was content on Mauritius, and the species lived exclusively, peacefully on the island for potentially six to seven million years. But humanity has never been content with a single solitary environment. As a species, we needed to spread out. We needed to constantly explore until we had encountered everything this planet had to offer. That's what put us on an inevitable crash course with this humble avian species, humanity's own need to spread its wings and sail. While it's possible that Phoenicians, Arabs, and Portuguese sailors may have stumbled onto Mauritius decades earlier, the Dutch were the first official human colonizers of the island. A Dutch East Indian trading vessel anchored off the shore of Mauritius in 1598. While it may just be a myth, the first meeting of man and dodo allegedly went something like this. A Dutch sailor stepped onto a beautiful beach of white sand, overwhelmed by the beauty of the place. The mountain range hung overhead, backlit with bright sunlight. It seemed quiet. A large-breasted bird ran right up to the sailor. Its feathering ended right behind its eyes, as if it were wearing a veil. It was large, almost like a swan or a turkey, and it stared right at the sailor, even cocking its head in curiosity. What it didn't do was run. One of the Dutch sailors picked up a heavy piece of driftwood and beat the dodo to death on the spot. Having no natural predators before this moment, the dodo never saw it coming. It had evolved to survive on Mauritius, but intelligent mammals were an unknown foe. It wasn't afraid of us, but it should have been. Soon enough, though, the dodo would have to adapt, or else it would find itself roasting over a fire. The human and the dodo had met. It wouldn't be long before the dodo was gone. We'll discuss the process of the dodo's extinction right after this. Now back to the story. Writing in his journal at the time, Dutch Vice Admiral Wybrand van Warwick gave the dodo its first name, Walgvogel. Roughly translated, that means insipid bird. Warwick's writings and other snippets from Dutch settlers between 1598 and 1662 represent the only documentation we have of the dodo in its natural environment. Warwick went on to write, quote, These birds are very numerous on Mauritius. Conspicuous for their size, they are larger than our swans with huge heads, only half covered with skin, as if clothed with a hood. 
These birds lack large wings, in the place of which three or four blackish feathers protrude. The tail consists of a few soft, incurved feathers, which are ash-colored. These we used to call Walgvogel, for the reason that the longer and oftener they were cooked, the less soft and more insipid eating they became. Nevertheless, their belly and breast were of a pleasant flavor and easily masticated. End quote. As for the origin of the dodo name itself, that came in 1602 when Captain Willem von Westzonen called the birds dodars, a nickname that has an even meaner and more vulgar translation, big ass. The Dutch's name-calling didn't stop there. The island itself was officially named Mauritius after the Dutch founded settlements. The peak of human settlement on Mauritius was between the years of 1638 and 1710. Their major residence was called Fort Frederick Hendrick. Even at its peak, only 250 humans ever lived on Mauritius at any given time. It was a stopover for the Dutch East Indian ships, never a major port of call. So how could it be that human settlement spelled the end for the dodo? Were these strange birds really that delicious? Modern studies of the waste-dumping grounds near the former site of Fort Frederick Hendrick do not show evidence of a single piece of any dodo skeleton, meaning the settlers didn't depend on dodos for food. Could humans have really been responsible then? Yes, because humans didn't come to Mauritius alone. On their ships, the sailors had brought with them a huge number of non-native species. There was livestock like pigs, goats, chickens, and even deer. There were pets like cats and monkeys. And then there were stowaway pests like rats. The island's ecology had never faced an influx like this before, and its native dwellers were unprepared, especially the dodo bird. Remember, before 1598, Mauritius had never harbored land-bound mammals. The evolutionary paths of the plants and animals on the island weren't built to handle these animals and their expansive breeding capabilities. For generations, the dodo birds had nested on the ground. There was no need for them to build their sanctuaries higher up, as other birds might have done. There was little threat to their eggs in the rocky outcroppings where they usually nested. But now... These nests were easy targets for rats and cats alike. Pigs, deer, and chickens all cut into the food supply that had fed dodos since the beginning of their existence, and these animals could fight off the dodos for this limited supply. As the early decades of the 17th century ticked along, the dodos became a less common sight for sailors and settlers. Their friendly nature was tested, and they had to retreat deeper into the forests to escape their new predators and competitors. Yet even this forest shelter was threatened. Human-led deforestation destroyed plant life and animal life on the island. Today, Mauritius only has around 2% of its native forest. The ecology was irreparably damaged, and it didn't just affect the dodos. Other birds, like the Mauritian owl and broad-billed parrot, Reptiles like the Mauritian giant tortoise, and plant life like the palm orchid, and the previously mentioned tambalacoque, all faced extinction. The Dutch settlements didn't fare much better than the native species on the island. They were ravaged by intense weather and deadly disease. Fort Frederick Hendrick's population dwindled until it was fully abandoned at the turn of the 18th century. 
Later, French and English colonizers would try again and find more success by transforming the island into a sugarcane plantation. But for now, humanity was leaving the island behind with some deep scars. 1662 marked the date of the final account of a dodo sighting on Mauritius by the sailor Volkert Averts, who was shipwrecked on the coast. Quote, These animals stared at us and remained quiet where they stood, not knowing whether they had wings to fly away or legs to run off. These birds were those which they called dodersen, being a kind of very big goose. These birds are unable to fly, and instead of wings, they merely have a few small pins, yet they can run very swiftly. We drove them together into one place in such a manner that we could catch them with our hands, and when we held one of them by its leg, and that upon this it made a great noise, the others all on a sudden came running as fast as they could to its assistance, and by which they were caught and made prisoners also." End quote. So it ended as it began, with humans taking advantage of the dodo's good nature. In 1710, the Dutch abandoned Mauritius for good. By the time French colonizers arrived five years later, the dodo was extinct. At least we now accept that it was extinct. At the time, humans didn't even notice that the dodo population was dwindling. They simply paid no attention to the birds. Extinction wasn't even in the scientific lexicon until paleontologist Georges Cuvier definitively proved it in 1796, over a century after the dodo's eradication. People just couldn't believe that it was possible for a living species to completely vanish. It was inconceivable when science was still so entangled with religion. Why would God create something that could be taken away with so little fanfare? Instead of accepting that the dodo was gone for good, people began to think of the creature as nothing but a legend in the first place. Even when an early 19th century scientific study polled the oldest people living on Mauritius, no one recalled the dodo. Misconceptions proliferated. Due to a lack of scientific drawings from direct observation on Mauritius, paintings of dodos tended to portray it as fatter than it actually was. There was an odd trend in 17th century European art to paint birds much larger and plumper than they were in reality. There were a few specimens brought back from Mauritius, dead and alive, but all were treated with a lack of respect. An English traveler reported seeing two living dodos in the possession of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir. Neither were ever bred, and they died in captivity. The dead specimens were treated as mere curiosities. A few stuffed dodos are mentioned in correspondence from the late 17th century, but no one who held on to these rare objects knew their worth. Not a single taxidermy dodo exists today. Famously, the Oxford University Museum received a dodo skeleton around the year 1656. While it's not known if it was a full specimen or not, it doesn't really matter anymore. Preservation techniques were not yet up to snuff back then. By the early 18th century, most of the skeleton had completely decomposed. The museum burned most of the bones away, leaving only the skull and a piece of one of the legs. Until the Mare Ossange dig site was discovered in the middle of the 19th century, these two bones were the most prominent evidence that the dodo had ever existed at all. 
Other museums and displays sometimes claim to have a more complete fossil of the dodo, but these were almost universally pieced together from other birds, leading to further misconceptions and deceptions regarding the dodo's physiology and history. All of this confusion paints quite a picture of humanity's relationship with extinction. Recall that the process of extinction itself wasn't even widely recognized until Georges Cuvier presented his premier paper in 1796. Cuvier's research was based primarily on mastodon and large ancient elephant bones. Other scientists pushed back, claiming that the large species could have migrated to other parts of the world. People simply couldn't accept Cuvier's ideas until he dug up mastodon fossils right outside of Paris. Based on the age of these fossils, compared to similar elephant fossils found in India and Africa, Cuvier stated there was no way these bones belonged to a species that still existed. There was literally nowhere for them to hide. It was time for humanity to face the truth. We had a major effect on the species living around us, to the point where we could completely wipe them out. The only way they could ever live on was through their fossil record and the research that followed. Yet in the case of the dodo, that fossil record seemed tragically shallow, and thus our historical conception of the bird was very dim. To shine light on this forgotten bird, a dedicated few needed to fight to bring the story of the dodo bird back to life. We'll discuss the dodo's reemergence in the public consciousness after this. Now back to the story. In 1848, English naturalists Hugh Edwin Strickland and Alexander Gordon Melville published their compendium, The Dodo and Its Kindred. The book provided the deepest look at the dodo yet, which is impressive given how little physical evidence there was at this time. The book is generally credited with kickstarting the scientific fascination with the dodo bird that remains to this day. To quote this book, quote, We cannot see without regret the extinction of the last individual of any race of organic beings whose progenitors colonized the pre-Adamite earth. But our consolation must be found in the reflection that man is destined by his creator to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. End quote. Cuvier's research into extinction made humanity fully cognizant of its ability to cause permanent damage to the world. This is why the dodo rose back into visibility within the cultural zeitgeist. The bird was a compelling figure. This level of interest also translated into fiction. It led author Lewis Carroll to include the extinct bird in his masterwork, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The dodo portrayed, of course, a foolish and insipid politician. British paleontologists took note. Luckily for them, Mauritius was now under British colonial control, and the colony there had an estimated population of 300,000. In 1865, British laborers on Mauritius began to uncover bones in the soil around the colony. Mauritian schoolmaster George Clark identified them as dodo bones, comparing them to illustrations from Strickland and Melville's book. A larger dig was instituted on site. Humanity had just rediscovered Mer Ossange, the toxic swamp that had killed so many animals over 4,000 years ago. 
This is when notorious fossil hunter, paleontologist, and anatomist Richard Owen enters the story. Owen was the first person to claim and popularize the classification order of Dinosauria. Before, writings and studies about dinosaur fossils only presented vague notions about their origins and relation to one another. Owen coined the term dinosaur for the public consciousness through his writings in 1842. But he was infamous for being unreasonably dedicated to his own greatness. He was even a staunch critic of Darwin's theory of evolution, mainly, it seems, out of ego. As studies increasingly revealed the similarities between human and primate, Owen chose his hill on which to die, the brain. He refuted the idea that the minds of ape and man were linked in any direct way. Even as evidence broke that argument apart, Owen refused to back down. In 1865, Owen decided he wanted to be at the forefront of the dodo fossil hunt. Anatomist Alfred Newton had already claimed the fossils for his own study at Cambridge. Having received an initial collection of bones, Newton began writing a scientific paper on the subject and ordered another larger collection of bones from Mare Sange. Owen got word of this. By greasing a few palms, he intercepted the package before it could reach Newton. Now, with a much larger collection of fossils, Owen knew his study would be far more accurate than anything Newton could produce. So he blackmailed Newton into canceling his own paper and handing over the initial fossils from Mauritius as well. So the devious Owen became the first researcher with true access to the full anatomy of the dodo. Where Strickland and Melville only had broken fossils, Owen had more complete skeletal evidence on which to base his research. However, his recreations and illustrations of the full dodo skeleton were still composites. That is, they were made of the bones of many different dodos, not just one. He also based the structure on the exaggerated and inaccurate paintings of the 17th and 18th centuries. Due to these issues, the true life and behavior of the dodo remained a mystery. Only a singular, complete skeleton of a dodo could allow verifiably accurate access into the life processes of the bird. No such fossil was discovered at the Mare Ossange dig. And then, a conflict between George Clark, the schoolmaster who first identified dodo bones, and the railroad worker who found the site before Clark blew out of proportion. Both claimed they deserved to profit from this fossil boom. In turn, the Mero Sange dig site fell into civil war. Fossil prices skyrocketed. The site was soon abandoned. The dodo once more remained out of reach. But then came a barber. Louis-Étienne Thirieux lived a humble life on British Mauritius. He spent his days cutting hair and taking day-long expeditions into the beautiful environment that surrounded him. This barber was a budding naturalist. At some point in the early years of the 20th century, Thiriou discovered two separate collections of dodo bones. Thiriou offered to sell these finds to Alfred Newton, the anatomist that Richard Owen scammed decades earlier. Newton declined the offer. He thought Thiriou's find was worthless. Disappointed, Thiriou kept the fossils himself. When he died, they were donated to the Mauritius Natural History Museum. They remained there, unexamined, until 2011. 
Leon Klassens, Hanukkah Mayer, and Julian Hume became the latest paleontologists to revive the memory of the dodo. They were motivated to study the bird, finding the historical neglect toward the creature too much to bear. To quote Klassens, we have this continuous series of tragedies for getting the dodo over and over again. Klassens, Mayer, and Hume believed that what happened to the dodo was just an overture for what was still to come. According to a profile on the dodo's disappearance from the Atlantic magazine, extinction is so entwined with existence that scientists estimate, quote, more than 99% of all species that have ever existed on the planet are now extinct, end quote. When we add humanity into the mix, things get more dire. Studies have revealed that we humans have directly contributed to the extinction of at least 200 species since the dodo's vanishing. Going back further to the 1500s, nearly 300 species have become extinct thanks to us. According to the research journal entitled Science, today, extinction rates are 1,000 times higher due to the human footprint on Earth. But even surrounded by present-day ecological destruction, it's hard to get people to sit up and take notice. Samuel Turvey, a researcher from the Zoological Society of London, sadly illustrates this reality in his work Witness to Extinction from 2006. Turvey writes of the Chinese Yangtze River dolphin, or Beiji, quote, it turned out it was possible to galvanize the world's media on behalf of the Beiji, but only after its extinction. That's what would sell. That's what constituted a story, end quote. But this sad reality motivated the trio of scientists to re-examine the dodo. Using a three-dimensional scanning technique, Leon Klassens returned from Mauritius with the ability to piece together an extremely valuable portrait of each of these individual dodos. It was finally time, as Klassens says, to give the dodo its due. Their research definitively disproved the idea that the dodos were clumsy or fat. To quote Klassens again, it has a very undeserved reputation as this clumsy kind of lumbering, inadequate bird, almost like a soccer ball with some legs under it. Even though it's not going to be the Usain Bolt of the bird kingdom, it has an anatomy that is consistent with much greater agility. The bird's stocky frame was actually due to its broad pelvis bone and not some excess of diet. That said, its bone structure did result in a sizable weight, perhaps around 40 pounds or so. Its legs and kneecaps were unusually hardy. The researchers believed that it was, quote, maneuverable, strong, and supportive. It was evolutionarily ideal for the dodo to move quickly in its rocky, densely forested home, end quote. Finally, those small, stubby, vestigial wings that caused such mean-spirited comments back in the 1600s also turned out to serve a necessary purpose. From muscle impressions left in the bones, Klassens, Hume, and Mayer deciphered that they played an integral role in the bird's balance and dexterity. Quote, With that weight distribution, it's like walking a tightrope. Being able to flutter those wings gave them capacity for improved balance, end quote. In general, the dodo was all about balance. Its isolated evolutionary path was strange, 
but it was highly capable of survival and reproduction on Mauritius before humans intervened in its history. These findings were invaluable in understanding the dodo bird, but Tiriu's skeletons were still missing some bones. Since 2011, Klassens and his team have desperately searched both the island and Tiriu's old correspondences. Yet they can find no record or exact location of where Tiriu discovered the fossils in the first place. As usual, the complete dodo skeleton remained just out of view. But here's where modern geneticists can step in. Using the fossils discovered by Tiriu, as well as many smaller bones uncovered when the Mare Ossange dig site was excavated yet again, the DNA of the dodo was put under the spotlight. It proved that the dodo's most similar species still on Earth was the Nicobar pigeon in Southeast Asia. Furthermore, by comparing the nucleotides extracted from the dodo bones with the genomes of similar living species, scientists are getting very close to sequencing the full genome of the dodo bird. That means humanity might be able to make up for wiping out the dodo after all. One day, maybe quite soon, we will be able to bring the dodo back to life. Now, geneticists caution that these potentially resurrected creatures won't be exact replicas of the extinct species. Due to the modern context of the world, their behavior may be altered. But Klassen's team's search for a complete dodo skeleton may be fulfilled from another direction. Not from the ground, but from the laboratory. With close study of the dodo bird and its closest living relatives, life may be possible once again. With the possibility of bringing back the dodo, we return to Stanley Temple in 1973 and his fears regarding the Tambalakok tree's fate. Recall his hypothesis. The dodo bird was an essential part of the tree's life cycle. They picked its seeds up off the ground, ate them, and then through the process of digestion, activated an essential process within the seed that allowed it to germinate. As the tree's numbers dwindled, Temple's study of the dodo's potential digestive process led him to introduce a new species of turkeys onto Mauritius. Their digestion of the Tambalakok seeds mimicked the actions once provided by the dodos. The Tambalakok tree thrived once again. In honor of the bird whose life was once so intertwined with it, scientists gave the tree a secondary name, the dodo tree. The story of the dodo's extinction, in the end, helped us save another species. And in general, this bird's history widely spread awareness about natural extinction and the importance of protecting species on the edge of that threshold. In the end, those who kept the dodo's story alive may even be responsible for someday bringing a new version of the dodo bird back to Earth. This much is clear. The millennia-long saga of the dodo and its constant flirtation with both physical and historical extinction is a lesson to us. It teaches us how to properly remember, respect, and learn from the history of our fellow travelers on this Earth. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. 
We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>